You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Well, I'll pray and we'll, we'll get started here. we got a lot of ground to cover. So. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and just the opportunity to continue our study in Job. And uh, we just pray as we enter this time where we, we look at these conversations with these friends that we can learn things from these conversations about how we should react to our own trouble and then how we can come along and comfort those uh, that are in distress themselves. And can we learn from the, the error of, of Job's friends and, and also can we learn from just what your word tells us. And I, I pray that your word would speak to us and that we would apply it as we leave this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So tonight we're going to be in Job 4 through 7, which is a lot of material to cover. Uh, but we're going to take a look at uh, Job's friend Eliphaz as he speaks. As somebody finally opens their mouth after seven days of sitting in a trash pile, they're finally going to speak. And so, you know, just real quick review. We've looked up to this point in Job. We've looked at Job's integrity as long as, as long, uh, along with the role of Satan. Uh, we've, we've also seen the, Job, the testing of Job through a unique lens. Uh, and it can be difficult for us to, to remember that Job doesn't really have all the information that we have when we read this story, uh, right? Job doesn't know all of the intricacies of what's gone on in chapters 1 and 2. And he doesn't know the specifics of the spiritual battle that he finds himself in. And uh, this week we're going to look at or start to look at Job's three friends as they interact with Job. So they've come to visit and uh, there's a lot of conversation here several chapters, so it's going to be a long ride, but hopefully we can be patient enough uh, to get something from it. Um, And I've mentioned before that his three friends get a bad rap, right, because there's a lot of bad advice, there's a lot of bad counsel, and a lot of bad technique uh, from their attempt uh, to comfort Job. But at the same time, they did spend seven days in a trash pile with Job, mourning and grieving, and and didn't say a word. Uh, so, So they should get some credit and they do speak some truth, but what we'll see is that they, they apply it very poorly. So their method of counseling isn't always the most effective, and I think we can learn from that. And like I said, tonight we're going to look at this interaction between Job and Eliphaz. And he's the first of the three friends that speak, and, and he breaks the silence after seven days after Job spoke. Um, Eliphaz takes it on himself. He's like, all right, so Job's finally said something, so now I feel like I can say something. And I think what we can see from this conversation is this idea that sometimes our attempts to help can hurt, right? We have, in, we have well, good intentions, we have intentions to help, but if we go about it the wrong way, then our efforts can actually hurt the individual, right? And uh, I think that's what we see with Eliphaz, because he's a, he's a concerned friend, he's traveled a long way, he's spent a lot of time with Job, he's got good intentions, but all he ends up doing is adding to Job's misery. Uh, and I want us to remember Job 2.11, right? It says, now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort, right? So, and, and Cindy laughed because she's read ahead. But... They had good intentions, right? They made an appointment. They got together. They said, we're going to go visit Job, and we're going to provide him sympathy and comfort. Now, what we're going to see is that's the furthest thing from what they actually provide. Um, 
They had genuine concern. They had good intentions. They had a mission to show him sympathy and comfort him, but that's not what happens because they lose sight of their original intent. Um, and we'll come back to this over and over, but, but we can be guilty of doing the same thing with other people. And appropriate actions... So here's, if you remember anything tonight, you can rem- this is the first thing I want you to remember. Appropriate actions are what brings comfort, not good intentions. And the same holds true for every aspect of our Christian life, right? God, dis- he desires appropriate actions that move well beyond good intentions. Good intentions aren't enough. Uh, we talked about sin this morning. I think everybody was here. And we all have good intentions, Right, ninety-nine percent of the people on the planet don't don't set out to. I'm gonna I'm gonna go find some sin today, right? But good intentions. Cindy says maybe eighty-nine percent, not ninety-nine. But good intentions don't get it done. God desires appropriate action, right? And so let's let's read chapter four. And we may not read all four of these chapters, but we'll at least read some of what Eliphaz speaks to Job. In chapter 4, it says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Should anyone try to speak with you when you're exhausted? Yet who can keep from speaking? Indeed, you've instructed many and have strengthened weak hands. Your words have steadied the one who is stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. But now this, now that this has happened to you, you've become exhausted. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Isn't your piety, your confidence, and the integrity of your life your hope? Consider, who has is, who is perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. They perish at the single blast from God and come to an end by the breath of his nostrils. The lion may roar and the fierce lion growl, but the teeth of young lions are broken. The strong lion dies if it catches no prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was brought to me in secret. My ears caught a whisper of it. Among unsettling thoughts from visions in the night, when deep sleep comes over men, fear and trembling came over me. And made all my bones shake. I felt a draft on my face, and the hair of my body stood up. A figure stood there, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form loomed before my eyes. I heard a whispering voice Can a mortal be righteous before God? Can a man be more pure than his Maker? If God puts no trust in his servants, and he charges his angels with foolishness, how much more those who dwell in clay houses, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed like a moth? They are smashed to pieces from dawn to dusk. They perish forever while no one notices. Are their tent cords not pulled up? They die without wisdom. Now, some of, some of this can really be can really be hard to decipher. Um, there's a lot of poetry here. It's not necessarily a conversation like you encounter on a daily basis. And so we're trying to wade through all of this. And what is Eliphaz really getting at? And as I study this and read this, some of it strikes me like reading a text message. And so you know, as well as I do, that if I send a text message to somebody, some people may read that text message and think, how could he be so rude? And then other people may read the text message and not see rudeness at all. Like you can't, it's hard to grasp the context, right? So we're trying to figure out what's really going on here, but sometimes that can be difficult to do because uh, you have a difficulty with the tone and here in verse 2, it's exactly what I'm talking about. And I, and I encountered this when I was studying commentaries. He says, he says, should anyone try to speak with you when you're exhausted, yet who can keep from speaking? So Eliphaz asks Job, essentially, can I speak now? Can I say something? And you can interpret that in two completely different ways. And that's what I found in commentaries, which really, 
I was like, wow, how can so many people see this so in so different ways? Some people have interpreted this as like Eliphaz is being a genuine friend and he's asking, is it okay if I say something now? We've sat here for seven days. You finally broke the silence. Can I say something? But others, and I tend to fall into this camp, think that Eliphaz is throwing a jab right out the gate at Job. He's grown tired of waiting. He's grown tired of listening to Job complain, and he's going to speak regardless. It's interesting. It is interesting that he asks, can I speak? And then he just keeps, he speaks. He doesn't wait to get a response from Job. Job doesn't give him permission. He just carries on. So I tend to fall in the second camp that, that Eliphaz is just tired of sitting around, and he's got to get something off his chest. And, and that seems to be uh, affirmed by, the, by what Eliphaz provides. And so he starts by commending Job for all the counsel that he's provided others. But he quickly turns it around on him. And he says, now that you're in the position of the counselee, you can't even heed your own advice. That's what he's saying. You've helped all these other people, and now you find yourself in the situation that they were in, and you can't even listen to your own words. What good are you? And I, th- I think that that is a jab I think Eliphaz is, is taking a punch at Job there because that's eerily similar. His comments are eerily similar to the words of the chief priests and elders when Jesus was on the cross. They said, look at this man. He saved so many, so many other people, but he can't save himself. It's the same thing Eliphaz tells Job. You've helped all these other people, but for, for some reason you can't help yourself. And then he keeps coming with the hits. In verse 6, he's like, isn't your confidence in God and your integrity your hope? He's like, what, what, of, of what value is all of that if, it's, if it can't save you now, if it can't help you now? He said, it's funny that someone who trusts so much in God and finds his hope in him at this moment appears to have no hope. Explain to me how that is, Job. Eliphaz is, is somewhat subtle, but he thinks Job is guilty. And he says so much in verse 7. He says, consider this, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? Now, from, from Eliphaz's perspective, he's saying, listen, and he's going to say this explicitly here in a minute, but he's saying, listen, these are all the things that I've seen. I've never seen anyone that was completely honest and completely upright and completely blameless like you say you are deal with what you're dealing with. So the implication is what? You're a liar, Joe. <laughs> you're a liar. But we know that Eliphaz's question his premise here is the furthest thing from the truth because just read verse 7 again. Who has perished when he was innocent? What's the obvious answer to that question? Jesus. Jesus perished when he was innocent. Right? Eliphaz's theology is, is centered on this, this doctrine of retribution, which just essentially means that the righteous don't experience trouble and the wicked do. But we know that that's not necessarily the case, especially, we've talked about this, in this temporal setting, right? On earth today, we have seen righteous people suffer. We've seen wicked people prosper. Now, we know that eternally that's not the case. But temporally it is. And so Eliphaz's theology here doesn't line up with the world. It doesn't make sense. And Job realizes that. But... His theology is based on bad sources, and he's going to show it to us right here in chapter 4. The first thing that we see is in verse 8. This is where he gets explicit. 
Notice the first three words in this. I prefer the ESV, but in this nice Bible that seminary gave me, this Christian standard, it says, in my experience. So in the ESV, it says, as I have seen. So in my experience or as I have seen. He's saying, this is what I've seen in my life. And Job, what you're saying doesn't line up. I've seen the righteous be blessed. I've seen the wicked have been not prospered. They've been judged. So essentially what I'm saying to you, Job, is if you're being judged, that you must not be too righteous. But what we need to recognize is this as I have seen or in my experience should be a huge flashing neon sign of warning to us. Because that's not where we need to place our hope. That's not where our theology should be based. Right? It's, first off, if we think about Eliphaz, we think about what he said, it's very arrogant of Eliphaz to assume that his personal experience is broad enough to set the standard for all of humanity. He said, I've seen in my little window, so that means it's true for everyone. It's a prideful position. And, and secondly, you know, personal experience can be of some value. We know that. You've experienced things. This is the way this works. And so when I come back around to this in life, I know how to deal with it. There's some value there, but we can't give it too much value. And we don't have to look very far in our day and age to recognize this as a serious problem, right? Truth has become relative. I was in a class. I was in class last Friday. Not this Friday, but the Friday prior. And we had a guest speaker. And that was one of the questions that she asked the students. And I had to push back on her a little bit because she was throwing that idea out there that truth is relative, right? That is there such a thing as right and wrong? That's the question that she asked. And she alluded to the fact that maybe not, maybe not. And I, and I fired back real quick and said, listen, truth is not relative, right? There is right, there is wrong, there is truth, and there's lie. But in our society today, that's, that's, that's the way we're headed. Scripture tells us on top of that that our hearts are deceitful, right? And they lead us astray. So if our experiences are driven by our feelings, then we're in trouble if we're placing too much emphasis on them. That's exactly what Eliphaz is doing here. Personal experience can guide us, right? But it shouldn't be our North Star. It's not, it shouldn't be our anchor. And that's what Eliphaz is doing. He's allowing his own experience to set his theology, and it's a bad thing. The next thing that he shows us is in verses 12 through 21, he talks about how this theology of his was affirmed by a spirit. Now again, this should be a flashing neon sign of warning, 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 warning. Can we get a word from the Lord or the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But it's going to come in a distinct fashion, right? It's, it's not going to come, out of, I believe, the way that, that it comes to Eliphaz right here. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There doesn't appear to be any testing from Eliphaz here. He, he is visited by the spirit, and he automatically assumes that what it tells him is the truth. And there's some key things that we see in the description that Eliphaz gives us, right, that makes it appear as though this spirit isn't from God, right? And a couple things here. One, stealth. It's super sneaky, and it comes in unnoticed. It doesn't follow the pattern. Eliphaz himself describes it as creepy in a sense, okay? When God's spirit comes upon someone, it's not creepy, and then notice the key here. I think the third thing that we see that's most important is there's no authority here. 
There's no authority. There's no, every time you see uh, an instance of, of God speaking to someone in the Old Testament, there's always some statement similar to, the Lord said, or thus saith the Lord, right? There is none of that here. There is no authority. So we've got to be careful. And it's also, what he, what he even tells us, that the Spirit told him, there doesn't appear to be any true revelation, but just some general truth, some general truism, right? And it appears that, what does that truth do? It accuses Job. Well, who accuses? The accuser. It's also interesting to note, I think I mentioned this last week, but biblical historians, they've noted that the Sabians and the Chaldeans, the ones that, that stormed Job's property and took some of his livestock, killed some of his servants, right? They would have possibly been very far from home, which makes their behavior odd. And so it seems to imply that Satan influenced their behavior. There's a little whisper, hey, go get Job's stuff. Hey, this is great. I got an idea. Let's go get Job's stuff, right? And we see the same thing here, I think. It's a very similar pattern into what's happening with Eliphaz, right? So he's, he's basing his theology on experience and an untested spirit, right? It's bad information. Now, when we get to chapter 5, we got time. God bless his word. Let's just read it. It says, call out, chapter 5, will anyone answer you? Which of the holy ones will you turn to? For anger kills a fool and jealousy slays the gullible. I have seen a fool taking root, but I immediately pronounced a curse on his home. His children are far from safety. They are crushed at the city gate with no one to rescue them. The hungry consume his harvest, even taking it out of the thorns. The thirsty pant for his children's wealth. For distress does not grow out of the soil, and trouble does not sprout from the ground. But humans are born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. However, if I were you, I would appeal to God and would present my case to him. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain to the earth and sends water to the fields. He sets the lowly on high, and mourners are lifted to safety. He frustrates the schemes of the crafty so that they achieve no success. He traps the wise in their craftiness so that the plans of the deceptive are quickly brought to an end. They encounter darkness by day, and they grope at noon as if it were night. He saves the needy from their sharp swords and from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. See how happy is the person who God corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also bandages. He strikes, but he also heals. He will rescue you from six calamities. No harm will touch you in seven. In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in battle from the power of the sword. You will be safe from slander and not fear destruction when it comes. You will laugh at destruction and hunger and not fear the land's wild creatures. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure and nothing will be missing when you inspect your home. You will also know that your offspring will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will approach the grave in full vigor as a stack of sheaths is gathered in its season. We have investigated this and it is true. That's an interesting verse right there. We'll come to that in a minute. Hear it and understand it for yourself. So we got in chapter 4, we got a lot of bad information. Bad theology based on bad sources. What we get in chapter 5 here from Eliphaz is good information, a lot of truth, but poor practice. Poor counseling, right? So he shifts gears. He moves away from his bad theology, and he starts to provide some truth, but his methods are poor. And it's interesting that he begins this section by sarcastically prodding Job to call upon some mediator. 
right? He's making the point that, Job, listen, quit, shut your mouth. Nobody's coming to save you until you come clean, until you spit out the truth. He's already accused him basically of being a liar, right? And he's saying, nobody's going to fix this until you come clean. But he's off base here because Job has nothing to come clean about. But what we see, it's interesting, there's another reference in Job to the need for a mediator, right? It's this very small shadow. It's not even a full shadow. It's a very small shadow of Christ to come that Job will reference later. So just this, remember that. It'd be interesting to go through the book all at one time and mark down where we see every hint of a mediator, right? Now, it's also interesting. Eliphaz shifts to speaking in the third person, almost like if I talk like this, it, it won't really seem like I'm talking about you, Job. Wink, wink, right? But it's clear to see what's going on. He talks about general truths about the error of a fool and the effect on his children. But it's, there's striking similarities from what's happened to Job. His children are far from safety. They're crushed at the city gate with no one to rescue them. What happened to Job's kids? The house fell on top of them. I mean, it's pretty cold, man. I mean, he doesn't say, hey, I'm talking about your kids, Job. But everyone in the room would know you're talking about your kids, Job. What he's saying is true, but it's not applicable, right? It assumes Job's guilt. And it's easy to hear the emotion that has led Eliphaz astray, right? Why did he come to meet Job? Again, reference back to 2.11. We came to provide comfort and sympathy. No, you didn't. Right here, I mean, we haven't even got a chapter and a half in, and, and all we know is it sure looks like all Eliphaz wants to do is be right and wants Job to shut up. There's no comfort here. That's what I want you to see. There's no comfort, there's no mercy, and there's no kindness. So whether or not Eliphaz is speaking the truth, and there are some truths here, there's no comfort, there's no mercy, there's no kindness, and therefore Job's not going to hear, even if it was applicable, which it's not. He's also got a very condescending tone. Verse 8, man, it's like a slap in the face. He says, however, if I were you, I would appeal to God, and I would present my case to him. Again, no compassion, only condescending. He's essentially saying, listen, Job, if I was in your shoes, this is what I would do. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you a few things about God. Because apparently, based on what's going on, you don't know him as well as you think you do. That's what Eliphaz is saying. But if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we make the same mistake that Eliphaz is making, right? In our desire to make it right or fix something, we jump to conclusions thinking we have all the information, when in reality, we don't. We don't know what it's like to be in the other person's shoes, and that, you know, we act like it's just a simple fix. That's what Eliphaz is doing. He doesn't know what's going on. He just like Job doesn't know chapter 1 and 2, Eliphaz doesn't know chapter 1 and 2. But he's making a lot of assumptions. And to make it worse, to pour salt on the wound, he flaunts a relationship and a knowledge of God in Job's face. Like, you want to know who really knows God? Me, not you. He says, here's what I would do, and let me tell you a few things about God. Eliphaz is essentially, when he says that, he's saying, listen, you must not be doing these things, and you must not really know who God is. And that flies in the face of what we know about Job. Again, go back to the first chapter. What did God himself say about Job? What Eliphaz is saying is not the truth. It doesn't, it doesn't apply. And, and Eliphaz goes on, and he speaks all these things about God. And if you look at all of these statements that he makes about God, are they true? Yeah, they're true. He does great and unsearchable things. He gives rain to the earth. He sets the lowly on high. He frustrates the scheme of the crafty. He traps the wise in their craftiness. 
He does all of these things that Eliphaz says, and yet it doesn't apply to Job's situation. So what we see is we've got improper application to all these general truths. In verse 17, man, he just keeps smacking him. In verse 17, he says, See how happy is the person whom God corrects. So don't reject the discipline of the Almighty. He says, listen, Job, God's disciplined you. You should be happy about it. Why are you wailing and crying over here? You should be happy about it. He says, snap out of it. Again, is there truth to that? Does God discipline individuals? Absolutely. Should we be happy that God disciplines? Absolutely. But the only problem is this doesn't apply to Job. Job's not being disciplined. Eliphaz doesn't know that. But at the same time, he shouldn't be so quick, just like we shouldn't be so quick, to judge a situation when we don't know the whole truth. He continues on and he describes blessing that God can most certainly deliver. Right? Some of these blessings are ultimately fulfilled in the life to come. However, some of these things should cause us to raise an eyebrow. Right? How, does Eliphaz, how can Eliphaz be certain that what he promises will, be, will apply to Job? He says, your offspring will be many. How, how can Eliphaz, Eliphaz can't guarantee that. He says, you're going to live to an old age. If you get right with God, you'll live to an old age. Eliphaz can't guarantee that. What happens here is Eliphaz appears to transform into this prosperity gospel preacher, and he's pretty good at it. We don't have to look any further than the life of Christ to see that the innocent can and will suffer, that this doctrine of retribution that Eliphaz clings to, it's not true. And what Eliphaz says last, it should grab our attention. Notice in verse 27, this phrase, we have searched out, this translation says, we have investigated this. You just read over that and glance over it. Who's the we here? The we here is me and my two buddies that are going to come and comfort you. We got together on the way and we started talking about how we were going to fix it before we ever really saw the problem. We jumped to our own conclusions before we ever even saw what your situation was really like. It's just bad application. There's no kindness. There's no comfort. What they claim to set out to do is the furthest thing from what they actually do. And it, I do not want to uh, step out of bounds here, but as I read between the lines here, it sure seems to me, and I have not found this in any commentary, so if I wrote a commentary, it would be, I would put it in there. But it sure seems to me like there's a little bit of, if you go back into the first chapter, it says, and Job was the greatest of the men of the East. Right? And so if you look at, I mean, let's just, this is America, let's just say Tom Brady. How many people hate Tom Brady? He's a quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now. He has seven Super Bowl rings. There's plenty of people that hate Tom Brady just because he has seven Super Bowl rings. Right? People look at successful people and they can think badly upon successful people just because they're successful. So there may be a hint of that going on here with these three friends. Like, oh, Job's always considered the greatest. Now it's my turn to go watch a man get knocked down. And I might even enjoy a little bit of it. There seems to be a little hint of that going on. I could be wrong, but the way Eliphaz speaks, he sure seems to enjoy putting Job in his place. Now Job comes back, and he, he's got a rebuttal in chapter 6 and 7. And, and essentially, here's what, what Job says. In chapter 6, it says, Then Job answered, If only my grief could be weighed and my devastation placed with it on the scales, then it would outweigh the sand of the seas. That is what my words are. That's why the, my words are rash. Surely the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. My spirit drinks their poison. 
God's terrors are arrayed against me. Does a wild donkey bray over fresh grass, or an ox low over its fodder? Is bland food eaten without salt? Is there flavor in an egg white? I refuse to touch them. They are like contaminated food. If only my request would be granted and God would provide what I hope for, that he would decide to crush me, to unleash his power and cut me off. It would still bring me comfort and I would leap for joy in unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have What that I should continue to hope? What is my future that I should be patient? Is my strength that of stone or my flesh made of bronze? Since I cannot help myself, the hope for success has been banished from me. A despairing man should receive loyalty from his friends, even if he abandons the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are as treacherous as a wadi, as seasonal streams that overflow and become darkened because of ice, and the snow melts into them. The wadis evaporate in warm weather. They disappear from their channels in hot weather. Caravans turn away from their roots, go up into the desert, and perish. The caravans of Tima look for these streams. They tr the traveling merchants of Sheba hope for them. They are ashamed because they had been confident of finding water. When they arrive there, they're disappointed. So this is what you have now become to me. When you see something dreadful, you are afraid. Have I ever said, give me something or pay a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Help me understand what I did wrong. How painful honest words can be, but what does your rebuke prove? Do you think that you can disprove my words, or that a despairing man's words are mere wind? No doubt you would cast lots for a fatherless child and negotiate a price to sell your friend. But now, please look at me. I will not lie to your face. Reconsider. Don't be unjust. Reconsider. My righteousness is still the issue. Is there injustice on my tongue, or can my palate not taste disaster? Job begins his rebuttal to Eliphaz. He draws a comparison to his frustrations, anger, and calamity, and the weight of all the sand of the sea. What he's saying is that although you appear to make a good case, Eliphaz, you have no clue about the pain that I'm dealing with. No clue. The loss of my family, all my possessions, they're great. But again, what weighs on Job even more is this idea that God, for some reason, is against him. Job acknowledges that his comments and his frustration have been rash, and maybe they've gone too far, but Job declares it's for good reason. Again, it's just this simple idea of quit pretending like you know what I'm experiencing because you don't. He goes on to rebuke Eliphaz for lacking kindness. He argues that this is what true friends would have brought me, but you have failed. And he compares them to this stream, this failing stream, a source of water that disappears. He said, you promise relief. Remember what you said? Remember the reason why you said you were coming to see me? You promised this relief, but it just disappeared. It vanished. You promised comfort, but you failed me. He gets stern and he argues that Eliphaz assumes his guilt because if Job is innocent, then Eliphaz would have to come to terms with the idea that he could experience the same thing that Job's experiencing. He says, you're afraid. You're a scared little man because you, you assume that I'm a liar because if I'm not a liar, then the same thing that's happening to me could happen to you and you don't want to deal with that. Job is confident in his righteousness, but he's confused more than ever. Right? He's, he looks at Eliphaz and he says, there's no substance here. In verse 24, he says, teach me and I'll be silent. Help me understand what I've done wrong. He says, you're, you're, you tell me that I'm blowing hot air, you're blowing hot air. He said, you've accused me of all these things, but you've really accused me of nothing. What's the specific charge? What is the specific thing that I've done that's put me in this place? You tell me I'm a liar, how have I lied? 
He says, look at me. I'm standing right in front of you. Am I lying to you? Tell me how. He says, get specific. Quit throwing all these general truths at me that anybody could do. Tell me what I've done wrong. And of course, Eliphaz has no response. Because he doesn't know. He's just making a lot of assumptions. In verse 7, Job now goes into prayer. He's talking with God. In verse 6, he's talking to Eliphaz. In, verse, in chapter 7, he's talking to God. He says, And isn't each person consigned to forced labor on the earth? Are not his days like those of a hired worker? Like a slave, he longs for shade. Like a hired worker, he waits for his pay. So I have been made to inherit months of futility, and troubled nights have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, when will I get up? But the evening drags on endlessly, and I toss and turn until dawn. My flesh is clothed with maggots and encrusted with dirt. My skin forms scabs and then oozes. My days pass more swiftly than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is just a breath. My eye will never again see anything good. The eye of anyone who looks on me will no longer see me. Your eyes will look for me, but I will be gone. As a cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol will never rise again. He will never return to his house. His hometown will no longer remember him. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you keep me under guard? When I say my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I may prefer strangling. Death, rather than life in this body, I give up. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is a mere human that you think so highly of him and pay so much attention to him? You inspect him every morning and put him to the test every moment. Will you ever look away from me or leave me alone long enough to swallow? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target so that I have become a burden to you? Why not forgive my sin and pardon my iniquity? For soon I will lie down in the grave. You will eagerly seek me, but I will be gone. So again, as we conclude this, this section with Eliphaz, Job is speaking to God. He's in prayer. And it's important that we recognize this because it's something that we see each time Job converses with one of his friends. And what should stand out is not necessarily what we see, because we know that Job's a righteous man, but what should stand out is what we don't see. Eliphaz has claimed to have a knowledge of God that Job doesn't have, and yet there's not one single time that we see him or his two other friends converse with God. Job's the only one we see converse with God. Again, this is another flashing neon sign, warning, pay attention, there's a red flag here. Job's prayer in chapter 7, it focuses on three questions. The first is, where is my reward? He declares that a man spends his day working, right? So this, a hired hand works hard, but at the end of the day, he gets paid. And Job claims that even under the hardest conditions, a man is refreshed at night. At least he can get some sleep when he lays his head on the pillow. He says, I can't even get that. So he cries out, where's my reward? Where's the wages for my work? I can't get any relief. Then he asks, where's my hope and my rest? Again, like we've seen in previous chapters, Job continues to complain about his very existence. Why am I even alive? And his language demonstrates the great pain and agony that he's in. It's emotional and it's physical. And he sees no end in sight. And he's clinging to very little hope. He's a beaten down man. And he ends his prayer with the question, why? The same thing he said to Eliphaz. If I have sinned, what have I done? Why am I your target? Why am I a burden to you? And again, these seem like very harsh words. It's, it's not 
easy or fun to read. And they are harsh words, but what they are also is honest words. And I believe that that's a key to faith. God desires to hear from us honestly. He doesn't, he doesn't care about nice, fancy, elongated prayers. It's not, we talked about this morning. What's he care about? The broken, contrite heart. He wants to hear from his people honestly and openly. And that's what we see from Job. Job never stops seeking God. He, even in the midst of all this pain, he doesn't have the answers, and he questions some things. He questions, why is this happening to me? If I've sinned, can you please tell me what I've done? But even in that, he never stops seeking God. So as we look through these four chapters, what, what does it have for us? What, what are we supposed to learn from this? The first thing is that we need to understand not all advice is good advice. Eliphaz makes that very clear. He starts with good intentions. I genuinely believe he wanted to help his friend. He wouldn't have traveled that far if he, on some level, didn't have some intention of helping him. But what he did was just make things worse. His bad theology didn't help him. And it should serve as a strong reminder to us that when we interact with other people, the source of our information matters a great deal. And all that we offer other individuals, especially in a counseling situation, should be rooted in Scripture. Personal experience should not be our primary source, right? It doesn't trump the truth of Scripture. We also should be leery of any word, dream, or vision that we perceive to be from the Lord. They can be genuine, but even Scripture itself tells us to test the Spirit. Scripture has to line up with what the dream, vision, and encounter tells us. It's interesting, and I think I'm going to refer to this multiple times as we go through this book, but there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I, I find very interesting that says, Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. A lot of times our personal experience may be almost right, but we've got to know the difference between right and almost right. We should be very cautious about assumptions that get us in trouble. Eliphaz assumed that Job was guilty because it lined up with his worldview, right? But Eliphaz was wrong. He didn't have all the information. He wasn't guilty. Job wasn't guilty. And as a result, a vast majority of what Eliphaz told him, it just didn't apply to Job. So even if we have, even if we author, offer some truth, if it's not applicable, it's not, it's not of any worth. The second thing is our motives matter. Initially, Eliphaz sought to comfort Job, but his motives quickly changed. Maybe he initially did start to comfort, but we find very quickly that it shifts, and all he wants to do is be correct. And his comments seem to be centered on himself and not Job. And again, Job pushes back and, and says, you're, you're a scared man because you realize that if you're, if you're wrong, then you could easily find yourself in my situation, and you don't want to stand in front of the mirror and face that. So motives matter. Are we, are we in it to help others? Are we genuinely seeking to provide comfort, or are we just trying to comfort ourselves? Next, our methods matter. In the second half of Eliphaz's speech, we find a lot of truth, but the truth doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to Job's situation. And even if it did, like I mentioned before, it's not going to be effective. Job's not going to hear it because of Eliphaz's method of counseling. He's presumptuous, condescending, and prideful. And when I'm presumptuous, condescending, and prideful, other people aren't going to hear me. It doesn't matter how much truth I have. The way we attempt to comfort other people, it matters. 
And if you think about what's ironic, if you think about Eliphaz and the comfort that he tries to provide, what was his greatest success to this point? And I think it's going to hold true through the whole book. But what was Eliphaz's greatest success? Sitting with Job for seven days and not saying a word. That's his greatest success. That's when he provided Job the most comfort. When he opened his mouth, he got into trouble because his methods weren't right, his motives weren't right. And like I mentioned before, sometimes the best counseling that we can provide is just being present with somebody. Job said that, and he says that in, in, in this passage in 6.14. He, say, he basically says to Eliphaz, shouldn't, shouldn't you be kind? Like I thought that's what a friend was supposed to be. And yet, everything you say lacks kindness. In Romans chapter 2, that's what Paul says. He, he speaks on the idea that, that God's kindness, His mercy and love, is what draws people to repentance. It's not beating somebody over the head with a stick. Eliphaz didn't, didn't understand that. And then the last point, like we've seen in the past, is just true faith continues to seek God regardless of the circumstances. So sometimes th- throughout... Throughout this book, we're going to see that some lessons, they constantly repeat themselves, but we can't hear them enough. And Job chapter 7 should be a strong enough encouragement and a strong reminder to us that through everything, regardless of the good, regardless of the bad, we should continue to seek God. Job never questions or curses God. He questions why he's confused about his situation, but he never questions God. And even in his confusion, he continues to seek out God. Trial is going to do one of two things. It's going to either drive you away from God or it's going to drive you to God. And Job makes the right choice. He desperately wants his hurt to be healed. But even though he's not being healed in that very moment, he's got the faith to keep looking to God. He recognizes that God is my only hope. So next week we get to see uh, Job's interaction with Bildad. And what you're going to notice is, read ahead, but what you're going to notice is, there's some thought, and I'll reference this next week, but there's some thought that these three individuals, uh, Job's three friends, speak in the order of their age. The oldest gets to speak first. And, and you also tend to know through your own experience, I'm sure, that the older you get, the more gentle you tend to become. And so we see that with Job's three friends. As we go from oldest to, to, the, to the youngest, we see that the harshness of their comments ramps up towards Job. And so uh, we can learn a lot from that. But tonight, just understand that, man, your, your sources matter. Where your information comes from matter. It should all be grounded in Scripture. And how you treat other individuals matters because they're not going to hear you if you're beating them over the head of the club, right? Job's friends came with the intention to provide comfort. But in, the intention alone doesn't provide comfort. And when their, when their methods turned south really fast, all it added was Job's misery, right? He's more miserable than ever. But through it all, he never, he never forgot to, to seek after God. So we'll continue next week, and uh, I'll pray, and we'll close out. Lord, we thank you for your word, and, uh, and just this interaction, Lord, and the, and the information that we can learn from it. Lord, I, I pray that we would be as faithful as Job, and that regardless of our circumstance, that we would continue to seek you out. And I also pray that we, uh, as we are in situations that, that you place us in where we can provide comfort to others, that we can learn from the mistakes of Job's three friends that we'll see, that we saw tonight and then we'll see in the weeks ahead. That we won't assume that we know everything 
and that we won't lose sight of, of what we're trying to accomplish, that we're trying to draw others back to you, that we're trying to bring you glory and honor, and we're trying to provide comfort. We're not trying to prove that we're right. Lord, above everything, it's our desire that, that people would see you through us, and may our motives, intentions, and may our actual actions always promote you and bring people closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.